to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chaney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Chaney, Galuzzi & Howard, LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I'm the co-chair of its new lawyers division and also serve on the executive and legislative committees. I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association and the Colorado Bar Association. For the Colorado Bar Association, I serve on its Board of Governors, the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council, and finally, I was just appointed to begin serving on the CBA's Executive Council. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we're just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. With that, let's jump right in. I'm super excited for our guest for today's episode, our first judge um, on the podcast. With me today is the Honorable Cato Cruz, who is a magistrate judge with the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado. He was appointed uh, in August of 2018. He earned his law degree from the University of Arizona um, before joining uh, the U.S. National Labor Relations Board. He then entered private practice as an associate at a large Denver firm where he worked his way up to partner before leaving and founding his own small firm in the Denver Tech Center. Uh, One practicing law, Judge Cruz was a trial lawyer who focused on traditional labor law and employment law matters and general civil litigation. And so with that, uh, we'll jump right in. Judge Cruz, so happy to have you here today. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I know we just covered uh, a little bit of that general biographical information, but let's learn a little bit more uh, about you. Um, Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, where you're from? All right. I'm a Colorado native. I grew up in uh, Pueblo, Colorado, was born in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, My dad lived in Rye, Colorado, which is a small town about 20 miles south of Pueblo. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I finished middle school, I moved to Rye to live with my dad. So I went to a Rye High School. Uh, I think at the time they had 164 students, maybe. (laughs) Um, And I was the only African-American male uh, in my high school. Um, But it it was a, uh, a very good experience. Uh, so Colorado native, grew up in Southern Colorado, uh, did my undergrad in uh, Greeley at the University of Northern Colorado. Um, I thought I was ready to experience uh, something new for law school, so I uh, chose to go out of state. I was actually trying to escape Colorado winters. Um, <laughs> my family and I were not uh, winter sports uh, people. Uh, so I uh, went to uh, Tucson, Arizona uh, for law school and ended up missing Colorado a great deal. I missed the four seasons, actually missed the snow. Uh, and so was anxious to uh, get back to Colorado after law school. I can relate to that. I was born and raised in Casper, Wyoming. Okay. And when I went to my guidance counselor, I was like, one requirement is I better never see a snowflake uh, wherever <laughs> I go. And ended up going to the University of Hawaii uh-huh. and then realized that as awesome of an experience as that was, that I missed the seasons yeah. and I just missed the the Rocky Mountains. And uh, it uh, brought me back. Um, before we move on, uh, being from Pueblo and then doing labor law, if I were remember correctly from my labor law class and Professor White, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I don't remember this off the top of my head, but Pueblo actually has a pretty robust labor history, right? Uh It really does. And with the uh, CFI steel mill that was or is there, but uh, was uh, active uh, back then, um, it has a pretty rich uh, history with respect to uh, organized labor. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. And uh, what made you kind of want to be a lawyer? What drew you to the profession? Yeah, you know, when, when, you know superficial uh, reasons, uh, really. My dad was a solo practitioner in Pueblo. He never really talked to me about what he did as a lawyer, so I didn't quite <laughs> understand it. But uh, I knew that he looked really good in his suits, and I thought, <laughs> you know, I'd like to do that. Um, I also knew, though, that he, he was helping people. I vaguely understood that. And so I decided then that uh, I wanted to be a lawyer, at least I wanted to go to law school. 
as I got older, you know, I learned a little bit more about what lawyers do. I actually had decided I was going to go to law school regardless for the degree, but I uh, originally was going to, uh, wanted to go into public relations and I wanted to uh, work for a PR firm and help companies manage their PR uh, crises. But, you know, when I was in law school and, and you're learning everything you learned there and I began to realize, well, that's what lawyers do is they help clients and companies manage uh, manage crisis. And so I thought, uh, well, I might as well use my law degree uh, for what it's intended for. And so uh, it was probably my, uh, after my first year of law school, I decided I would actually uh, use my law degree to become an attorney. And at that stage, kind of in between that 1L and 2L year, is that when you kind of decided, hey, labor kind of might be an interesting practice area? Uh, was that an interest prior to law school or was that something that developed later? Yeah. So, um, with my my degree in undergrad was uh, journalism uh, with an emphasis in public relations, I and I did so the summer between my first year and second year I did an internship with Sears Roebuck Company in their PR department, mm-hmm. and I can't remember now I had taken a labor employment law class I don't that was probably maybe that was my first semester of my second year, but I began to see. Um, a relationship between employment law and labor law and public relations in terms of companies managing their workforce and their different target audiences that um, companies have to um, deal with effectively. And it, it, it felt something similar. It seemed similar to some of the public relations things that I studied in undergrad. And so I was drawn to labor and employment law um, in law school and felt that, well, now that I've decided I, I will actually use my law degree to be an attorney, that maybe that would be uh, the place for me is to see if I could pursue labor and employment law. And what brought you to uh, the National Labor Relations Board um, versus maybe, you know, jumping into a firm or working for a union? Um, what kind of attracted you to kind of the, the governmental side of the labor question? So to be quite honest, it, that was a bit by accident uh, as well. I feel like kind of I, I, my start uh, in becoming a lawyer and even choosing to go to law school, it, it was not as calculated as, uh, <laughs> you know, you might think or as some as it is for others. Um, but I had missed the boat on on-campus interviews um, <laughs> at University of Arizona. And quite frankly, again, a, a moment of naivete. I didn't really understand that that was taking place. I, I didn't know that those were opportunities for us. Uh, and I didn't know much. Coming back to Colorado, I didn't know much about the legal landscape here. I didn't know anything about the law firms and their, their cultures, their reputations, et cetera. And so I was scrambling a bit trying to figure out how am I going to get back to Colorado and, and have a job. Um, but came across uh, an announcement for a position as an attorney with the National Labor Relations Board, which was a bit of divine intervention, perhaps, since I had that interest in labor law. So um, I applied and it worked out. You know, and it's interesting, uh, we've had several guests on the podcast, and that actually is, is sort of a recurring theme in talking to people that uh, the vast majority of them did not end up at the place they thought they would kind mm-hmm. of when they started, um, you know, law school. And there's a lot of, I accidentally, you know, met this guy for lunch and we had right. a connection and then he offered me an internship. And next thing I know, I had switched my whole career path or, mm-hmm. you know, I took this class and was inspired by a professor and decided to go that route or, um, you know, and I think that's important for a lot of our listeners uh, who are young lawyers and law students is it's okay to not know. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay to not have a, a master plan. Or even if you do, it's okay to be flexible with right. that plan. Because if you're open to the opportunity, like, you know, it'll, it'll work its way out. Generally. Right. And I think that flexibility is absolutely key. Um, you know, you, people will find or should find over the course of their careers, different doors will open, different connections will be made. I mean, you don't really know and can't anticipate what's going to come up. Um, but if you have that flexibility to adapt and recognize those opportunities and take advantage of them when they come, um, you know, you can make great strides with your uh, development and your career. And uh, what was it uh, like working for the, uh, the NLRD? Uh, I know a little bit about it, but for our listeners who you know, may not really understand what the NLRD, uh, NLRB even is, um, what does it kind of do and kind of what was your role there? 
So uh, it's the National Labor Relations Board. It's a federal agency. They enforce the National Labor Relations Act, uh, so a federal law that essentially governs the relationship between uh, unionized companies, uh, so companies and their unions. Um, it also has certain provisions that uh, govern non-unionized workplaces. Um, in, in terms of non-employees have certain, they call, they're called Section 7 rights, so the right to uh, come together for concerted activity, uh, essentially to, to better your working conditions. Um, even though you don't have a union, uh, the law allows employees to come together to do that. And so the NLRB enforces that act, which means uh, we dealt a lot with unions filing charges uh, or grievances, if you will, but charges really against employers, saying this employer is violating the National Labor Relations Act by coercing employees, you know, in their in their uh, <clears throat> labor law rights. Or employers, didn't happen often, but they would file charges uh, against unions. Uh, we would investigate those charges, determine if there's any merit to those charges. Uh, we would write recommendations to the regional director uh, of the NLRB on we should issue a complaint uh, or we shouldn't. Uh, if we issued a complaint, then uh, we became a prosecutorial body. And so uh, it's all administrative stuff. So it's administrative hearings uh, oh. trying to prosecute uh, for whatever the allegation was in the grievance. And then lastly, they also handle union organizing elections. So, um, you know, which is the heart really of labor law. So employees who decide they want union representation uh, would file an election petition with the NLRB, and the NLRB would conduct uh, an election uh, with a you know a, a box and ballots and uh, count the ballots and so forth and certify uh, the union as the bargaining representative for a group of employees if if the vote came out that way. Interesting. And so, what uh, kind of caused you to transition? Because then I know after that you ended up going to a, a large kind of Denver firm, right? Right. So uh, the NLRB was a great place to start, um, but it, it, you know, it, it was a governmental agency that enforced one statute. And right. so I began to feel like, you know, we, we would handle the charges all in the same fashion. Um, and then just it, it, it all seemed to be a little too routine. And I felt like, you know, there's just more I want to do with my law degree um, than I'm able to do at the NLRB. And so... Um, after I was there for a year, uh, so I, after a year, I had decided that I wanted to uh, dip my toe in and 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 get into get into a law firm. Uh, and by then, I, I still didn't. I, I knew a little bit more about the legal landscape here in terms of law firms because we dealt with some of the law firms there, uh, and I at least knew the the players in town that had labor and employment law practices. So I I had a little better knowledge available to me to uh, try to enter private practice. And, you know, I think this is something that young lawyers with uh, struggle with, you know, on a, on a kind of routine basis is knowing when uh, to kind of make a change or to kind of, uh, you know, switch, not necessarily their practice area, but switch from kind of one type of, of, of a type of employment to another. Um, is that something that I guess you would recommend that, you know, it's okay for young lawyers to kind of, you know, get some experience over here and then kind of do something kind of completely different? Do you think that's beneficial um, to their careers or should they kind of try to stay focused and work their way up whatever, you know, kind of situation they're in? I think that young lawyers need to find what is going to make them happy and what's going to, to bring them balance in the practice of law and where are they where are they going to be most satisfied. So, I, you know, I wouldn't suggest making a change just for the sake of making a change. You know, for me, it was, I'm bored here. Uh, I, I feel like there's so much more I, I can be doing in my community and, and as a lawyer, and I need to find a way to do it different. But I, I think have, you know, be purposeful about it, have particular reasons why you would want to make a change. Um, but by all means, don't fear making changes, because I think in making those changes, you give yourself the greatest opportunity to uh, again, make strides in your development and, and uh, strides in your career. When you went into that firm, did you stay primarily focused on kind of labor issues or did your practice area focus kind of expand a little bit? Obviously, what you were doing expanded because now you were you know working as an advocate. Um, but did you kind of begin to branch out or did you really kind of stay um, with that niche? It expanded. So when I was hired, I was hired to be a part of the labor and employment uh, practice group at that firm. 
Uh, so that was largely and primarily what I did. But I also worked with other of the partners in the firm um, doing commercial litigation. Um, you know, a, a big part of what I did, which is, a, is something I would recommend to young lawyers looking for opportunities, it, it, at least young lawyers who practice in the bigger firms. I mean, sometimes these opportunities to get into court and get stand-up time are few and far between. Um, I was able to work with one of the partners. I was his go-to for uh, HOA covenant enforcement cases, which, you know, there's a pro se person, always a pro se homeowner on the other side. You know, it's a lawsuit because their lawn was too brown or the car was parked out in the driveway too long. So not, not sexy stuff at all. Um, but I got into county court often uh, on bench trials, um, and so it was a good opportunity to learn how to be a trial lawyer and learn how to present evidence, learn how to talk to, to a judge. Um, so I did have various opportunities available to me at that firm uh, outside of my uh, efforts to focus on labor and employment law. You know, and getting into uh, court as a young lawyer can be such a beneficial experience. When we launched our firm, um, one of the main reasons why we did criminal defense in addition to personal injury work is just the ability to get into court kind of uh, way more often and to um, really get that experience because there's not really a way. You can take trial ad classes, you can watch trials, but until you're actually doing it on kind of a low stakes I mean, obviously, every case is important for the individual client, but, you know, something where, you know, no one's going to go to prison for the rest of their life if you if you mm-hmm. lose is is such a, a valuable um, experience. And I know that a lot of organizations, I was at the ABA's mid-year convention in Austin uh, right before kind of COVID took over, and there was a, a robust discussion about what more bar associations can do to push, especially the big firms, um, into allowing... Uh, young lawyers to present more of the motions or actually kind of do um, more of the work uh, in in an actual trial. And right. it's, a, it's a tough call because on one hand, you know, you kind of understand the client wanting the most experienced best person. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like that person is eventually going to retire. And if your bench isn't ready to kind of pick up the pick up the mantle, uh, the, the, the legal system might be kind of in a, a tough place. Right, exactly. And, you know, we, we, our profession, unfortunately, has gotten away from the apprenticeship model of mm-hmm. uh, training young lawyers. And uh, I, I think that's something that is important. And I think that means going to court with young lawyers, but letting them uh, have the full reins and just being there uh, to be supportive. Uh, and so I was fortunate over the course of my career at the, uh, the big firm that um, they were able to um, foster my development in that way. And I know uh, from your bio that you uh, were one of the youngest associates to make partner back in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that as a lot of young lawyers are listening, are thinking about how am I going to make partner one day? What advice, and I know there's a lot of different things and it depends on the firm and the, and the practice area, but what kind of general advice would you give to a relatively new associate at a big firm who, uh, you know, kind of envisions themselves making partner one day? Mm-hmm. What kind of things can they be doing to, to kind of help them on that track? Sure. So some, some of the advice I would give is, you know, for, first and foremost, focus on the fundamentals of practicing law. Like for, first and foremost, learn how to be uh, an excellent lawyer, whether you're transactional or you're a litigator. Um, just learn how to master those fundamentals, learn to be an excellent attorney, because all of that's going to show in the work that you're turning into, uh, these partners and they'll be impressed by it. They'll want to give you more work. They'll get more, they'll have more confidence in you as a lawyer. I think that's part of it. Uh, two, I used to talk to young lawyers coming into the firm about, uh, their, their internal and their external marketing. So I think there's some internal marketing that can be useful, which means, you know, as, as if you're involved in your community, if you're involved in different legal organizations, if you're getting different recognition for some of the things you do, uh, make sure that the people within the firm know um, that you're getting recognized in different facets. Because again, I think that breeds confidence. Uh, it impresses partners, et cetera. Um, and then the external marketing, a, a little bit of the same thing, but that's how you're, you're out there in the community, you're building your brand, um, you're, you're getting your name out there, um, which also trickles then kind of back to the firm as they see your name associated with different things in the community. I think those things give partners uh, a view that you are somebody that can get out there 
uh, you know, how to interact with the community that may translate into being able to generate business and, and build a book and so forth. So uh, I think, but first and foremost, you got to focus on the fundamentals, just be, learn how to be a good lawyer. Once you start to get comfortable and, and start to master that, then think about your, your branding, both internally uh, and externally at the firm. You know, it's interesting as you were talking about kind of the um, internal marketing aspect of that and, and kind of making sure that people know kind of what you're doing and kind of what you're accomplishing. Because I remember being in law school and I, you know, knew a lot of these people over the course of three years. And it sometimes would be like three years in that I would discover some of this really impressive stuff that yeah. some of my classmates have done. I'm like, I've been decent friends with you for three years. And I had no idea that you founded a nonprofit and like moved to Chile for three years. <laughs> right. And, right. you know, and I know it's because a lot of them are just humble people who, mm -hmm. you know, are not necessarily used to you know, bragging, if you will, but there's a, there's a line between, you know, kind of bragging about yourself, but also having that confidence to kind of say like, this is what I've done. This is my experience. And this is why this helps me, you know, do X or do Y. And right. so I think it's important that you kind of said that, that, you know, you got to kind of get over that hump of, of, you know, self-promotion and, and you can do it in a way that's still humble and, you know, not in annoying to everybody, but you do need to be able to kind of sell yourself a little bit and be like, I am the man for this role or woman for this role. And kind of here's why. Right. You have to advocate. It, it is, of course, it's excellent to be humble, but you have to learn, you can still be humble while advocating for yourself and, right. and, and, and you can still be humble, but be a shameless self-promoter. Uh, an advocate for yourself, and and in I don't know if it's still this way in in some of these big firms, but um, where I was, in part, that was made easy because we had the the internal marketing department, and so I would go to the marketing uh, director and say, "Hey, I got this award," you know, and then they put it out in the internal uh, newsletter that would go around at the firm that everybody's reading about what people are doing, and so. Uh, even the seemingly mundane, you know, quote unquote <laughs> accomplishments, um, I would make sure to let the marketing director know. Uh, and nine times out of 10, that made its way into something. Um, and so people would see my name a lot internally. And I think that helped. I want to kind of shift gears here. We've been talking a little bit about big law, but then you uh, eventually uh, left that firm and founded a, I assume a much smaller firm um, in the tech center. What kind of drove you to kind of launch your your own firm? So I uh, at around that time when I was at the big firm, I, I got uh, I got tired of some of the just the big firm things, um, the the focus on the numbers and billable hour requirements and so forth. Um, and so you know, I, I tell people the story. I, my son was I don't remember how old he was at the time might have been four or something. And my wife needed me to stay home with him uh, one day. And when she told me that, my first thought was, well, that's going to cut into my billable hours. Um, and then I was disgusted that, you know, here's my opportunity to, you know, really step up as a father, be there for my son. He's sick. Uh, he needs me. And my first thought was about my billable hours. And then my mind scrambles. When am I going to make those billable hours up? And, and I just, I didn't like that at all. And so I thought, you know, there, there's got to be a different way to practice law uh, where that's not my mental focus, um, because I didn't like that that was my mental focus. Uh, I wanted to be able to be there in the moment, be present with my family, um, uh, and, and not be focused on the job or the numbers. And so that was kind of the straw for me. Um, one of my colleagues uh, had left the firm a few months before I did. Um, and so I watched how things worked for her, uh, talked to her on nearly a daily basis, um, and uh, that gave me some comfort with taking on that risk um, and leaving the big firm to go join her. Um, and we had, we had six attorneys at the time, I think, when we first uh, started. You know, as a, a small firm owner myself, you know, I, I like to tell people that 90% of the time I'm happy with my decision and about 10% of the time I'm like, man, it would be so much easier if someone else was just signing my checks. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it does, it offers a, a different type of kind of risk reward situation. You know, you get a lot of, of benefits of that flexibility of schedule and kind of to practice law the way you got to practice law. 
And then you also have that responsibility that instead of, you know, someone signing my checks, now I'm the one responsible for exactly. making sure that we have enough revenue. And it does kind of add these different uh, pressures and stressors. But I agree. I mean, for quality of life, I mean, you kind of doing your own thing or, or working for a, a smaller um, firm has really, at least in my experience, been, been really rewarding. Yeah. And that was my experience as well. Did you know... Uh, kind of early on in your career that you were interested in being a judge one day, when did that kind of pop into your head of, hey, that might be that might be something I would like to do? Um, I, I didn't know that early on. Uh, I had never really thought about it or planned on it, that's for sure. Um, I had flirted from time to time with the thought of maybe uh, Colorado Court of Appeals. Um, I, I had done some appellate work in my career, and I really uh, enjoyed it a great deal. Um, so had kind of flirted with that idea, but not, not anything serious. Um, so it wasn't until, let's see, maybe November or so of 2017, um, that I was, uh, I was dissatisfied with my practice. I wanted to, um, do things differently again somehow. And ultimately I wanted to do them differently because I wanted to make a greater impact on the legal system. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what that meant exactly or how I would do it. Uh, one of my partners and I toyed with, uh, what if we got into civil rights litigation or different things? Um, so, you know, I was really just thinking about and pondering what, how can I do this differently than I'm making a greater impact on the system? As I was going through those thoughts, uh, the email announcement came out um, that this position was open. Uh, and so I thought, well, there, you can't make a greater impact on the legal system than to be uh, a member of the judiciary. So I thought I'd give it a try. And I hadn't contemplated really a, a trial court. Um, I'm a little, I'm a bit introverted. And so that was why the prior uh, thoughts of, well, maybe court of appeals. Right, right. Um, but with my, my heart really being at the time thinking about, I want to make an impact on the system. You know, our, our trial court judges are the ones on the front lines uh, interacting with uh, the public and the people and the lawyers. And, and so, you know, that's where I think um, I, or, or thought as a trial court judge, as a magistrate judge in the federal court, uh, I could really, uh, have an opportunity to make an impact. Can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about how, um, first of all, what a magistrate kind of does in relation to a, uh, an article three judge and, also, I know that obviously federal judges are generally appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, and I think the process is a little bit different for magistrates. So can you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. So the, the Article Three judges are the district judges. Uh, it's Article Three of the Constitution. They're appointed by the president. They have lifetime tenure. Uh, uh, we fall under Article One, um, and we are magistrate judges. Um, so what we do is we assist the district judges. Um, we handle the preliminary matters, uh, essentially, in uh, criminal felony cases and in civil cases. Uh, we manage the discovery in civil cases. Uh, district judges can refer motions to us. Um, if it's a non-dispositive motion, so not a motion to dismiss or not a motion for summary judgment, if those are referred to us, we issue orders. Um, so we make those rulings that are binding on the parties. If a, a district judge refers a, a dispositive motion to us, then we issue a report and recommendation. So it's basically in the nature of an order, but we're recommending to the district judge that the motion be denied or the motion be uh, granted in part and denied in part. Then the parties have 14 days to file objections to our recommendation, and then the district judge reviews all of that and either adopts our recommendation, rejects it, adopts it in part, whatever he or she chooses to do. Uh, parties can consent to our jurisdiction in a case, which means if they consent to us, then we're the presiding judge on the case um, from its inception uh, through to post-trial. Um, and so we get the opportunity to preside over jury trials or, or have bench trials. And then in uh, criminal matters, uh, we are on uh, criminal duty uh, two weeks every 12 weeks. Uh, during criminal duty, we take the, um, we give advisements, we take plea, or we don't take pleas, we give advisements, we, um, uh, we do detention hearings, um, we do uh, preliminary hearings, uh, we do the preliminary things in a felony case. 
um, and then the district judge handles the felony case. In misdemeanor cases, uh, we have a petty docket, and so in those cases, uh, we preside over those from uh, through to uh, uh, sentencing. And so, Judge Cruz, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, process uh, for becoming um, a magistrate judge versus the Article Three judge. So we know the Article Three judge appointed by the president, but what is the process of becoming a uh, and who decides how you become a magistrate? So the process for magistrate judges is similar to the process for state court judges. Um, so there's an application to complete. Um, the chief judge convenes a merit selection panel uh, that consists of nine people, two, two non-lawyers and seven lawyers. Um, so you apply, you submit your materials. The merit selection panel is charged with uh, narrowing it down to the five most qualified candidates. Um, if you make that cut, you interview with the merit selection panel. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, the merit selection panel selects however many they're going to interview. Mm -hmm. um, so you interview with the merit selection panel. They narrow it down to five. Uh, those five then go on and interview with all of the uh, district and magistrate judges uh, in one in uh, you're interviewing with them all at the same time. But you interview with all of the judges and then it's the district judges who um, vote and they select you. So I'm hired by uh, the district judges of the federal court. Uh, we serve eight year terms subject to reappointment. So uh, around the time of the end of the eight year term, Another merit selection panel is convened. I don't know exactly what their process is, but they go through a process. They make a recommendation to the district judges as to whether or not the magistrate judge should be uh, retained or not, and it's up to the district judges. So we, we serve at the pleasure of the district judges. Are you assigned kind of one uh, district court judge that you work for, or do you work for multiple, uh, and does it rotate? Or tell us a little bit about that setup. We work uh, for multiple. Uh, so, uh, you know, they talk about the wheel in terms of cases being assigned randomly. Uh, we are also on the wheel. So when cases are filed, they could be drawn to us directly. And then the parties have a deadline uh, to either consent to our jurisdiction or not. And then if they don't, then the case is assigned out to a district judge. And then we'll typically stay on that case as the referral magistrate judge to handle all of the types of things that I've described. What qualities or, or jobs or other things kind of in your background do you think helped you get picked for what I'm sure was a pretty competitive process? Mm -hmm. so I'm assuming there's a lot of people that would love to be a federal magistrate. Um, and so for the people, you know, young lawyers, law students that are listening, what kind of things uh, about you or that you did or that you experienced do you think helped you uh, get picked? Um, well, I think, you know, certainly I think it was my uh, work as a trial lawyer, my reputation as a trial lawyer. Um, I think that it maybe was helpful that I uh, had practiced in a big firm and, well, practiced in the federal government, practiced at a big firm, practiced at a small firm. Uh, what I really think, though, was what I feel probably distinguished me uh, from other candidates was my work uh, in the community. Uh, mm. I, I had served on uh, numerous nonprofit boards over the course of my career, um, and part of um, how I, what I talked about in the course of my interview was um, because of my experience working with so many different uh people, different communities, um, different socioeconomic classes, um, based on my volunteer work, uh, that I was in a good position to uh, work with and understand the, the people who come before the court uh, and to be an effective uh, jurist in that respect uh, based on those experiences. And I, I think that it is those experiences that I had um, that might have pushed me over the edge. So it sounds like if, if you're a young lawyer or a law student kind of listening and you are interested in um, perhaps getting to the bench one day, whether that's state or federal or appellate uh, or trial, um, that in addition to you know, having obviously a strong legal background, um, that community involvement and kind of a well-rounded uh, set of experiences uh, is something that may be beneficial to kind of getting them over that finish line. I think so. And, and I think being purposeful about it, you know, you, if you looked at my resume and my background, you, you, you might think that, oh, this is somebody who set out to be on the bench um, because it looks like maybe I've checked all the boxes. Um, but, you know, that I was just doing what I had passion for uh, and what brought me enrichment. And so because of that, I feel like when I was in the interview talking about those things, um, I think that my my passion for it and my heart for those things came through, which means 
my genuineness was, was showing through. And I think that that was helpful as compared to if I would not suggest to young lawyers do these things just to check the boxes, because then I think your insincerity probably shows uh, when you're, you know, uh, in the having your interviews as part of this process. Um, so, you know, be purposeful about it. Choose the things that actually you have passion for and that, that you find fulfillment with um, and, and let that genuineness of you uh, be reflected in your background of experiences so that you can talk uh, about it. Uh, from a perspective of your your truth of who you are. I think you make a really good point about that. And that's something that, you know, when I, I'm obviously still a young lawyer, but I do mentor younger lawyers and uh, law students. And I'll often talk to them about the, how valuable authenticity really is. And like, you know, it's really help. It's really about finding who you are and then presenting that because, you know, and I, I think about my own practice I never meet clients with a tie on. I'm just not a mm-hmm. suit and tie kind of person. And of course, I'll put one on for court uh, right. where it's expected. But I just don't come across. I don't speak like a person who wears a suit. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, am joking and lighthearted. And, you know, that's just not me. And so when I'm wearing one, I just don't feel as authentic. And people kind of pick up on that. They yeah. pick up on especially kind of in, in trials and stuff when you're talking to juries, they ta- they, they pick up on whether or not a person is being authentic to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like, you know, it's not necessarily about checking the boxes, but it's about, you know, being true to yourself and, and, and really going where your passion and stuff is because that will shine through. Yeah. You know, you join a nonprofit that you're really passionate about, you're going to get a reputation as a passionate hard worker. You join a nonprofit that you really aren't interested in just to kind of check a box, and you're probably going to get a reputation as someone who's not always volunteering, who's not going the extra mile. And it may actually end up doing a disservice to you, even though it looks great on a resume. Right. A disservice to you and a disservice maybe yeah. to the nonprofit exactly. that you're, you're working with just for the sake of checking the box because your insincerity is probably going to show through. Um, one uh, thing I did want to ask you, if young lawyers are kind of interested in you know your journey to kind of become a judge or are looking for some advice uh, in that uh, realm, do you mind if they, uh, they contact you? No, by all means. Uh, I, I love making myself available to uh, young lawyers. Uh, I also do that with law students. Uh, I, I like to uh, be a, a, a connection for folks um, to have conversations and ask the questions. You know, when I applied for the job, I mean, I, I, I know judges generally, but uh, actually there were, I take that back, there were a couple of judges I did reach out to uh, over the course of the process. But if, if, if you don't know people, if you don't know judges, um, you might be hesitant to put your hat in the ring um, for a position. And so uh, I, I am more than happy to be a resource to people. So people can uh, should feel free to reach out to me. And that is, and that's awesome. And it's something that I think I've stressed now on every single episode that we have, and I'm going to do it again, how important it is to find mentors, to find other people that have already gone down the path mm-hmm. that you're trying to do uh, for all kinds of different reasons, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, advice about a specific legal thing, or you might want to mentor in your practice area. Um, we had a prior guest, uh, talking about how important it is to find mentors for professionalism and ethics Mm -hmm. and to really find a mentor that not doesn't teach you just the what of practicing law, but how to practice law. Um, and then obviously for, uh, networking and, and resources and things like that. And so that's, uh, that's really great. Uh, and I highly encourage our listeners, uh, to reach out to judge Cruz. I want to shift gears to kind of our main topic in the, uh, obviously listeners, you cannot see us, but we are sitting here <laughs> in face masks. Uh, this is one of our first in-person episodes since the, uh, coronavirus, uh, pandemic. And, uh, so I guess my first question for you really is how has COVID-19 impacted the federal bench? Yeah. So it's had a, um, pretty profound uh, effect in terms of how we do our work. Um, and its effect on our, our docket. So, for example, um, you know, my clerks haven't, they've been working from home, uh, I don't know, for the past three months now, maybe. Um, so most of us are working from home. Um, on the civil side of our docket, uh, we're not really, I mean, granted, so a lot, some of this is up to each particular judicial officer, but I, I think for the most part, most judges are doing things uh, very similarly. Um, 
so some of this perspective is really is, is a lot of what I'm doing, but um, no longer convening uh, in-person hearings. Uh, they're being done telephonically um, with lawyers calling in. Um, uh, you know, usually we would convene a scheduling conference on the front end of the case, so the lawyers would come in, we'll talk about the schedule, discovery limitations, and so forth. Um, but rather than do those on the phone, I'm just issuing uh, scheduling orders in cases. And that's in part because my courtroom deputy, although she, so she is, uh, my courtroom deputy is with me in the courtroom. She's running the, uh, the FTR system, which records the proceedings so that there's a recorded record. Um, she's working from home. She has two small kids. Um, I, she she manages it manages it well, but I think it's easier for her uh, from to the less hearings I can have that she sure. has to record. <laughs> you know, the better she can balance what she needs to balance. So, you know, some efforts being made to not convene things and just issue certain orders, um, but otherwise doing things telephonically. Uh, on the criminal docket, uh, everything that we do as magistrate judges is done uh, by video conference. So the uh, defendants are appearing by video. Lawyers are appearing by video. Um, you know, we're being broadcast by video, but that's all being done by video. Um, we're not convening grand juries right now, although I think I think we're starting uh, this month, or maybe we just started this past week. Um, but we weren't. We're not convening grand juries. And we're not holding civil trials at least or jury trials at least through July six. So um, there's been been quite a, a bit of change for us at the court in terms of how we set about to do our business. Um, you know, lawyers haven't stopped filing the motions, and so you know those things are still there, and so we're still uh, trying to get through all of that and issue rulings. But um, it's a little uh, less efficient for us right now in the way that we have to do our work. Are you guys doing? Uh, so I know you mentioned the video conferencing for criminal uh, kind of issues. Um, I know in state court we've gotten uh, the option from some judges that if the parties are willing to waive the jury trial and basically doing an entire virtual trial to the bench, complete with witnesses and exhibits and things like that. Are you guys doing? Um, in non-jury situations, are you guys doing any kind of full hearings or full trials uh, at the federal level right now? I don't know if anyone has done a, a full trial in that way yet. I know some judges have done, uh, I know one of the district judges did a, a preliminary injunction hearing uh, all by video, um, uh, and other judges I think have held different hearings uh, by video. So some of that is taking place. It's a brave new world out there. Yeah, I've been really watching is. the... Uh, uh, Supreme Court even doing uh -huh. hearings by telephone, <laughs> right? Um, and it's 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 fascinating uh -huh. just to see, uh, you know, how society adapts because at some point, you know, the show kind of has to to go on on a lot of the legal stuff, right? Um, and it's it's interesting to see what different jurisdictions and different groups are uh, doing to kind of uh, make that go forward. Yeah. Have you guys had discussions about? <clears throat> so I know in Denver, or not Denver, in, in the state courts. We are tentatively scheduled to resume jury trials uh, after July 6th, although, of course, our Supreme Court could move that back, uh, you know, given public health concerns. Um, have the, has the federal judici yeah, judiciary spoken about resuming kind of jury trials, and is that going to look substantially different kind of with social distancing. It's kind of hard to socially distance a jury. You right. know, that's kind of the whole point is to keep them together and keep them all in one room. Mm -hmm. um, has there been discussions about kind of what that'll look like? And uh, do you kind of have any insights on, on how we'll proceed? Yeah. So uh, our chief judge has issued a general order that has vacated all jury trials through July 6th. Um, so prob probably within the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll have an all judges meeting uh, to discuss whether or not that'll be extended. Uh, our chief is uh, part of a COVID-19 task force that I, I'm not sure who all is on the task force, but it's judges across, uh, federal judges across the U.S., um, and I'm sure medical professionals um, who are meeting and having discussions about COVID-19 and its effect on the courts. So I know that he's involved uh, on an ongoing basis in discussions, which he then brings to uh, us and all judges' meetings um, and uh, he and the district judges make decisions as to, you know, what, what our court's going to do, whether our court's going to extend a general order, things like that. So there are discussions in that regard, um, and I imagine in the next couple weeks or so, um, if, if things are going to change, uh, if that order's going to be extended or not, that a decision will be made.
Do you see, um, well, obviously, uh, some cases have already been delayed. Do you see um, the federal judiciary has always been relatively backed up, especially if you don't consent to the magistrate, as you were talking about, uh, just because, I mean, we just have a lot of cases and not Mm -hmm. enough judges. Um, Do you see that delay uh, in getting trial dates and stuff, you know, getting substantially worse as a result of kind of the, the COVID situation? Uh, I think it, it is likely uh, inevitable that that's going to be the case. I mean, you know, trials have been vacated. I don't know how, what the numbers are on how many, um, but those will have, those are getting, I know I've seen some reset for later in the fall, you know, whether they're, they'll even go then, who knows. I think part of what we'll face is even if this general order is lifted and people can, we can start doing jury trials, uh, I don't know if those will actually resume right away um, as people will still have concerns about social distancing um, jurors will have concerns about their safety. They may not want to show up for jury duty. And so I think those are all things that are likely under discussion, but things we'll have to uh, sort through and figure out in terms of how quickly are we actually going to resume. Um, and so the fact that, that things do get pushed off in that respect, uh, inevitably there's going to be some form of backlog uh, and further uh, trying to dig, dig out from that. You know, and I've been reading a lot of articles <clears throat> about COVID and kind of the jury system. And I think it's really going to be fascinating whether it has an impact on the diversity of juries, because, Mm -hmm. you know, there are different groups of people um, that are more at risk of COVID. And, you know, it's going to be hard to say if a person is, you know, X amount of years old and they they say, look, I don't feel comfortable you know, are, is that going to be excusable or not? And there's going to be a lot of really tough uh, decisions that hopefully will be made by, by people a lot smarter than me <laughs> on, you know, whether that's a, a fair jury and whether that kind of shifts the the makeup of the jury. And um, it's going to be a lot of interesting issues, I think, kind of coming up that we're just kind of getting into um, exploring. And right. I think that the the other thing that we were kind of talking about before the, the podcast uh, began was really this, um, the fact that a lot of criminal trials have speedy trial deadlines. Mm-hmm. And so we may see a lot of judges, both at the, the state and federal level, kind of called in to do pretty much exclusively criminal uh, in the near future to kind of clear um, that backlog. Right. Have you guys had any discussions about kind of shifting everyone's focus to criminal kind of in the, the near term? There haven't been any of those types of discussions. And, and for us, you know, since mag- as magistrate judges, we can't do felony cases. Mm. Uh, those are for the district judges. So um, that'll really be for the district judges to determine how that's going to work out in terms of felony cases. Um, misdemeanor cases, you know, those are ours. And, and you know, we're, we'll have to manage those uh, for ourselves since those are on our docket. I'm assuming, uh, I guess I don't know because I don't practice a ton in in federal court for criminal, that the overwhelming amount of of crimes on the federal level are are felonies. Are are there a lot of, uh, I guess, federal misdemeanors, if you will? Uh, there are federal misdemeanors that, you know, the ones I've seen so far are things like people getting unruly on airplanes, um, and they're being charged with something based on that. Um, but you know, things that, uh, you know, drinking in a, on federal land or something or speeding through the air force Academy, um, uh, those would be misdemeanor crimes that are things that come before us. I wanted to touch on on one other um, current event that is kind of addressing the nation or sweeping the nation right now. We're shooting this um, at the very first week of June. And uh, here in Denver and across the country, we've been witnessing uh, large-scale protests against police brutality and violence, all spurred by the uh, unfortunate death of George Floyd um, in Minneapolis at the hands of law enforcement. Um, I know that your situation as a judge uh, kind of limits your ability to comment on this, but I wanted to ask you as, as obviously a black male, but also as a judicial officer, as someone with children who is kind of, you know, eventually going to have to have, uh, you know, discuss these kind of issues, uh, what you kind of view as the legal community's uh, responsibility or some of the things that they can maybe do uh, to try to address these situations? Sure. So, um, you know, one, one yeah, I'm still a new judge, a relatively new judge uh, coming up on two years. But one thing I have had to learn in all of this is uh, the balance and the lines. Where are the lines for judicial officers in terms of 
um, how how we as judicial officers can or can't uh, be involved uh, when things like this happen uh, to the extent that uh, a judge wants to uh, assist in some way. So uh, I, I am uh, learning that uh, as all of this is happening. What I would say to um, young lawyers is, you know, one thing I've said to young lawyers before, uh, a message I like to convey is when I became a lawyer, I learned that there was a, a, a privilege that came with having a law degree. Uh, when I became a lawyer, nonprofit organizations began to seek me out uh, to serve on their boards uh, or to volunteer my time uh, with their organizations. And um, I, I felt that was because of my law degree and this, this presumption of power and competence and so forth that comes with that. So uh, there, there's a measure of privilege that comes with having that law degree. Uh, and I think that uh, for those who are in pain and who are hurting and who want to uh, make a difference, you know, lawyers are in a in a better position than others um, to know where and how and what levers to pull to make some tangible change uh, around uh, issues that affect our community. And so I would uh, just encourage young lawyers to find those levers, uh, recognize the privilege you have as an attorney, uh, and exercise that privilege, and maybe seek out nonprofit organizations um, that are doing things around uh, the type of change that you want to see. Uh, and really volunteer and give of your time uh, and put that effort in, um, leverage, leveraging your, uh, your power uh, as a lawyer to really get involved and effectuate change. You know, to echo kind of what you say, I always think back to that famous quote from Spider-Man that with great power comes exactly. great responsibility. <laughs> and, you know, I've had some of these discussions with my, my colleagues about pretty much what you just said that I was like, when it comes to like public health issues, people look to doctors, mm -hmm. they look to doctors they, as, as credible thought leaders on those issues. And when it comes to issues of law and policy, especially in the criminal justice system, they look to lawyers to kind of lead as a, uh, a thought leader and mm -hmm. to contribute to that discussion and to add an air of credibility um, to kind of what you're, you're advocating for. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough time for our city and a, a tough time for the nation, but you know, there's been a lot of, of hope and a lot of, of peace kind of over the last uh, few days, both here in Denver and, and other places. And sometimes it gets drowned out by the, uh, the negative uh, people that are, are out there. But um, a lot of people I think have been working really hard on, on these issues and continually, or hopefully will continue to do so. So um, uh, I usually end uh, these interviews by asking, uh, do you have a good uh, email address uh, for our listeners if they do want to contact you? Or what's the best way to kind of contact you if they're a law student or a young lawyer uh, that, you know, to set up coffee or just to kind of pick your brain? Sure. Uh, I'll give my, uh, my chamber's email address. And so uh, I'll say it and then I'll spell it. But it's Cruz underscore chambers at cod .gov. Uh, so C-R-E-W-S underscore uh, the word chambers, C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S at C-O-D dot U-S courts dot gov. Well, thank you so much, Judge Cruz, uh, for coming on the program. Uh, it was uh, very enlightening. And uh, thank you so much for the work that you've done in the community and, uh, and coming and speaking with us today. All right. Thank you. Get legal with it.